Today's podcast is sponsored by Pepper Boxing. Pepper Boxing is a guided workout that utilizes unique teardrop-style heavy bags to deliver the finest group workout in Nashville. The bags are filled with water, meaning they're easier on the joints while still providing great resistance for your training. Pepper Boxing pairs high-energy music with elements of interval training and weighted bar exercises for an invigorating, full-body workout. The unique circular layout ensures that you will never lose sight of the instructor or their guidance. There's no contact in Pepper Boxing's classes. They're not looking for a fight, just a great way to enjoy the physicality and release of boxing. Pepper Boxing, it's conditioning with a purpose. For more information, go to pepperboxing.com. Coming to you from the ugliest building in the Gulch, it's the Nashville Scenecast. I'm Scene Editor Steve Cavendish. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn, or wherever it is you find your favorite podcast. We want to say, first of all, thanks to Jeff the Brotherhood for giving us our intro music. It's a song called Diamond Way from the We Are the Champions album, and you can buy it wherever good music is sold. If you like us, subscribe to us and rate us. We'd love to hear your feedback. The cover of this week's scene reads... We have 9.3 million reasons to pick 2017's Nashvillians of the Year. That numbers the amount of money raised in the Big Payback, the annual day of giving put on by the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee. It not only puts money in the hands of hundreds of local nonprofits, but it also introduces many Middle Tennesseans to some charities for the very first time. On today's podcast, staff writer Stephen Hale and I talk with Ellen Lehman, the Community Foundation's executive director, about their very important work. Thanks for listening. How are you doing, Ellen? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so to start, and I do encourage folks to read the story, but to start with, we'll cover something that we talked about for the story, but just sort of the origin story of the Community Foundation, which I thought was a lot of fun. Um, can you kind of walk us through how this all started, what is it, 25 years ago now, a little over 25 years ago, 26 years ago maybe, and what discussions were happening around town that led to you cooking up this wild plan? Wow. I wish I could get uh, get the credit for cooking up the wild plan. I was just the fool that rushed in where the angel dare <laughs> not tread. Um, the reality is that for years there had been conversations about community foundations and about why Nashville needed one or wanted one. And every time it got shot down because, frankly, this is such an incredibly generous community that no one felt the need to have a community foundation. Um, lots of people went and wintered in Florida and saw what they could do. And others who came here um, when they married uh, left behind them community foundations that they knew and loved. And the opportunity came together uh, in late 1990. Uh, when I was at lunch with Ida Cooney at the old, revered, much-missed uh, cakewalk, um, <laughs> and she wagged her finger in my face when I started complaining about uh, being on the board of a nonprofit organization and how unwise and unfair it was of us as a community to expect a social worker or an artist or someone without training to manage endowment funds in addition to cash flow. Mm -hmm. And she wagged her finger in my face and said, what you need to do is start a community foundation. And I said, what's a community foundation? <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. And just for people who might not know, Ida Cooney was herself a 
important figure in the local sort of nonprofit sphere, right? Ida Cooney was the first um, executive director of what was then the HCA Foundation and is now the Frist Foundation. Right. So she knew what she was talking about. And I remember when we met in your office, you pointed out all the books that she had given you were behind us on the bookshelf. Yeah, we left Cakewalk, and I drove behind her to her office, and she handed me a bunch of books. And I read them and came back the next week and said, got any more books? Um, But by then, I was pretty firmly convinced that this was a wonderful thing to do. Because essentially what a community foundation is, is it's a charitable savings account for a community. Yeah. And so and, and in doing some research, I was I read a little bit about kind of just the national history of these community foundations. But uh, as we talked about, the, the first one, I want to say, was it 1914? Does 1914. That sound right? In Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and they, they, you know, I guess they take somewhat different forms in different places. But generally speaking, it's the same idea. And you have this great um, metaphor that I've already been using around the office and other people to dis- explain what the community foundation is. But I wonder if you could. For people who may not be familiar with what we mean when we're talking about a community foundation, explain what that even is. So a community foundation is an opportunity for people to come together and um, and do what they want to do in terms of being charitable. The things that they care about, that they have a great passion for. Um, we don't usually go to people and say, we need your money to accomplish our vision. We go to people and we say, what's your vision and how can we help you? The, the model, I think, that you're talking about is the um, we're really a gigantic wall of charitable cubbyholes. It's not very glamorous, but it is what we are. <laughs> um, so a gigantic wall of charitable cubbyholes, and we're the outside edge and the back. We provide the systems and the structure and the stability and the stewardship. Um, we can look a donor in the eye and say, your money will be used for the purposes you asked us to use it. And um, that gives people a great sense of relief that they've been able to do the things that they have dreamt of or thought about for a long time. Right. And the thing that fascinates me about that that model and using that image of the the wall of cubbyholes is that it gets at the the variety of things that can be done through this community foundation. You know, it's it's um, just looking through the site on the list of funds that now are sort of hosted by the community foundation. I mean, it's everything you can think of from, uh, we, we say know. from arts to zoology. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it really is. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's theater, uh, companies for teenagers. It's like elephants. It's, uh, it's animal. There's a lot of animal welfare. So, I mean, it's just, it's everything you can think of in between. And, um, and that's, that's sort of a really interesting Part of the model, I think. Well, the reality is that nobody, no matter how great their wealth or how great their hearts, can do everything. And so what we are trying to do is create an opportunity for people to do the things that will matter to them. And if you're interested in animal welfare and um, someone else is interested in the arts and a third person's interested in public education um, or in civic um, and historic preservation, um, there is room at the table for everybody. And in this particular case, uh, there's a cubbyhole that's available for everybody. Um, And each cubbyhole can have its own name and its own charitable purpose. We have 120 scholarships that have already been set up within us and everyone has its different criteria mm-hmm. and just so so people because i was not familiar with this as much until we talked that when you're talking about these different cubby holes these different funds these are you know say i wanted to set up uh, a fund that was going to go to um you know uh education for 
kids with incarcerated parents, which there are funds to that end, um, you know, then the money given to that fund would then be used to put out towards uh, in, in the form of grants or, or things like that, going to nonprofit organizations already on the ground doing that work. So it's a really interesting kind of way to, instead of having, as I, I know that people are sort of struck with this paralysis of like, I would like to give some money to this cause, this general cause that I have in my mind. I don't know the nonprofits that are doing the work. I don't know which ones are maybe best, which ones I can trust. And, and there's th- a- this is a way for them to give to people who are doing that work, who will then get the money to the people doing it on the ground, who have been vetted and who kind of know the best way, the most efficient way to use the money. And there's another item, which is that a lot of these gifts are really intended to last forever. They are endowment funds, and they are intended to leave um, a legacy to create an a permanent stream of resources for a particular cause or for a particular organizations. And when you're talking forever, um, you need to build in um, the opportunity to change and grow and, and behave differently. So if someone is looking at uh, maybe a, a gift for animal welfare, um, then the way we deal with that issue over time may be different. Now we have mobile um units that are going around spaying and neutering the animals of people who can't afford to do it themselves. Um, That was something that didn't exist 20 years ago and may not exist 20 years from now if there's another better option that comes along. But having the uh, ability to to promise that um, these funds will be used forever as people intended, even though the changing time and circumstance and the needs Mm -hmm. and opportunities will change over time as well. The other thing that I found so fascinating was we talked a lot about, and you've already touched on it here, that there, um, an organization like the Community Foundation can provide sort of the behind-the-scenes resources and things that every nonprofit is going to need in one way or another, but they may not all need their own accountant, I know, as an example used. They may not all need their own office space, and they may not all be big enough for that. Um, and we there's we we talked about how there's a lot of duplication of efforts in the nonprofit world, and people, anyone who has paid any attention will be familiar with the fact that there are 15 organizations working on breast cancer research or on any cause you can name. Maybe all of them doing good work, but there's so many of them, and they're possibly duplicating the work each other's doing. And you told me this fascinating story that I wonder if you could repeat here, which is about the the. Um, organization i'm blanking on the name of right now the crittenton uh uh, which is now the crittenton fund which which kind of decided okay we'll dissolve we'll just create a fund which will now go to these other organizations that are already doing the work we're doing um and that's another thing that i think is fascinating about the work you guys are doing at the community foundation is it's not just supporting the work the nonprofits are doing but it's actually supporting the health of the nonprofit community and the efficiency of it we, we thank you for noticing. Um, we, we do do a lot of work in trying to strengthen the community and trying to make it more efficient and more effective. And the reality is that um, we are concerned that the charitable pie may not grow as fast as the number of nonprofit organizations. So we have to learn not only how to keep growing the charitable pie, but we have to learn how to slice it differently. We have to think about um, how to create those efficiencies and that effectiveness. Um, just like a business would. Um, if you think about it, nonprofit organizations are businesses. They're just not for profit. They're nonprofit. Talk about if you could, there, there's also 
a, a fund that you mentioned to me that exists solely to support nonprofits either merging. Basically, if if the duplication of efforts is a problem in the nonprofit world, you guys host a fund now that just goes to support eliminating that problem or solving that problem. Absolutely. And and a lot of it goes back to that Crittenden um, experience where Crittenden was had been in um, an organization that was serving this community for probably well, over 100 years. And they were serving, serving pregnant teenagers and teenage mothers, right? Teens yeah. and parenting. Yeah. Um, pregnant and parenting teens yeah. was the was the slogan. And the reality is that um, that problem's never going to go away entirely. But they realized that they did not need to have their own superstructure. It was a very brave and um, and logical move, um, but a hard one that the board took. I mean, it's hard to say on your watch that an organization that's been around for 100 years is going away. And, mm-hmm. the, and there's it should be noted, too. I mean, nonprofits, you, you were talking about nonprofits are businesses and have to operate kind of within certain bounds. I mean, Businesses and, and, and corporations and whatever else also have egos. And so sometimes the organizations, it can be tough for them to walk away from that. And that's what I was struck so much by that Crittenden example was even though you're maybe doing good work, kind of changing your view to what might be the greater good might mean dissolving yourself and doing something which you weren't necessarily intending to do to begin with when you started this work. I, I found There's a pretty remarkable humility in that. Really. A- absolutely. I mean, just, to say, like, you know, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful <laughs> than you can possibly imagine. It's like that we can actually just pour all of our resources into these existing places and do more good. As and and I, and I found it, I found it fascinating that that the work that some of the work you guys do facilitating that uh, is, you know, is really trying to solve problems as opposed to uh, as opposed to kind of cater egos, which. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of that. When a lot of times when people are giving money, they're they're giving something for their legacy, for their you know to be to be carried on, and and even for even for good purposes. I, I wonder, kind of like, how hard is it to navigate some of those some of those waters? Um, well, the easy thing is that we can accommodate almost anything as long as it is charitable. Um, the challenge has really been for us that um, there are lots of people who are on a staff or who are on a board of a nonprofit organization that believe that it is their responsibility to protect the shingle, to protect the entity itself, um, as opposed to protecting the work and making sure that it is carried out um, with great efficiency and effectiveness. Um, we don't have enough charitable dollars in this community to squander them. And we have to, um, and we have to figure out a better way to, as I said before, to slice the charitable pie. Um, it's hard. It is extremely hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because there's that old adage, which is true, by the way, that nonprofit leadership are are overworked and underpaid. <laughs> and um, as a result, we don't it, know anything about that. Yes, here. I'm sure you've never seen that. anything or heard anything like that. Um, <laughs> seen was a pun, by the way. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm with you. The um, but the the reality is that um, now I forget where I was going. I'm sorry. You distracted you, me. You said you said um, that nonprofit leaders are overworked and underpaid. No, yes, and nonprofit leaders are generally, truly, as the old saying goes, overworked and underpaid. And it is really hard for them to pick up their head uh, from their daily tasks to think differently and to imagine a bit better, different future for them and for their organization. 
Let's give you a question. I mean, one thing that strikes me about Nashville has grown a lot in the past decade, certainly since the Community Foundation was founded. I mean, and has gotten a lot wealthier, a lot richer in a lot of ways. Do you, do you, from your seat at the Community Foundation, is charitable giving and charitable activity keeping up with that? Um, does, does that make sense? There, yeah, no, that does. Um, there, there, there are a lot of people who just got here. Um, who have not yet experienced that the coin of the realm for the city is participation in charitable giving. It may be giving of time, it may be giving of money, it may be giving of talent, um, but it is the way to make friends, it is the way to interact socially in a new community, it is the way to do good deeds and to feel like you have a sense of ownership in this community you have chosen to live in. And um, it used to be uh, in in previous uh, previous years or decades, that extraordinary people like Tommy Frist would go and sit down with a new CEO of a company that had just arrived here and would explain to them that charitable giving was really important to this community and had made it what it was and had that that in in fact had uh, created a community to to appeal to the people who just got here. Um, but the price of membership, if you will, is to support the community and to continue to help it grow and address the needs and opportunities that will unfold over time. Mm-hmm. So another thing we definitely want to talk about is the big payback. Um, and we highlighted this in, in our story that in four four years, but as, a, as you pointed out when we talked, it's four days, really, because right. this is a 24-hour event. So in four days, the big payback has raised $9.3 million. Yep. And the, the thing that I am so struck by about the big payback is that it's it's this, like, gateway drug for charitable giving. It's fun. It's you, You're scrolling through. You told me about a woman who described it, too, as a shopping spree of giving. The it's like, funnest shopping spree she yeah, had I ever mean, been it's, on. It's Amazon Prime for giving to charities. You <laughs> get on there, and you're just scrolling through, and there's all these cool organizations that are doing cool and things. It's, and it's not just $9.3 million. It's $9.3 million with with the biggest total of any one place being a little over $100,000. Yeah, so that's spread among a ton of, of different organizations it causes. Right. So we have, in the four years that we've done this, we have had 1,183 unique organizations which have participated wow. in the big payback. And those are all from the 40 counties that we serve. Yes. Right. The other thing, and I'm, I'm blanking on the numbers, I know each year they had, I want to say last year, or I should say this year in 2017, earlier this year, the number of people who said that they were they gave to an organization for the first time, where it's like 6,000 some people just for this year alone. Um, well, my favorite statistic from the big payback is that 18,606 donors have self-reported making a gift through the big payback um, to a nonprofit they had not previously supported. So they're being introduced to new organizations, new causes. Um, it's not just... Uh, say the elephant sanctuary drawing on every <laughs> elephant head fan you know in the, in the it's people discovering new things they didn't know existed the woman who said that it was the funnest shopping spree she had ever been on got on to support one organization and while she was there she sort of looked around and she saw other organizations and she said oh I've heard of that one I wonder what they do or I've heard of this or so and so's on that board and she ended up reading I mean the reality is that um, 
every participating organization has a profile of their work and a statement of their mission um, that every donor or every person, you don't even have to be a donor, every person can get on the website during that 24 hours and learn about the resources that this community is lucky enough to have. And and when they go to look at those organizations, uh, you guys mandate that anybody who participates in the big payback have a profile on Giving Matters, yes, which is a transparency organization that lets that lets potential donors go back and look at the tax records and kind of the the giving profiles of each one of these nonprofits, and I think that transparency is amazing to have in this day and age because when I give money to someone, I want to know that it's going to have an impact. Absolutely, and the best way to do that is to be able to look at exactly what they've done. Uh, can you talk about that level of transparency? Well, it used to be, I'm so much older than everybody else in this room. Um, <laughs> I, it used to be that when you got asked for a charitable contribution, you got asked for $10 or you got asked for $15. And now you get asked for $1,000 or $1,500. Um, those, uh, those really are not gifts anymore. They are, they are investments. And so the reason that we created... Um, giving matters in the way it is set up is because we knew that people needed to feel confident in their charitable giving. They needed to have information. They needed to have answers to their questions. They needed that transparency. And so we created, um, on the website, there are issue overviews, which talk about the needs in a particular thing, like human sex trafficking or the like. Um, And not only is there an overview of the the sector or the need uh, or the issue, but there also is um, an overview of the organizations that are serving um, that need or that opportunity or that issue. And so what we put together was really like a value line um, was for the for-profit sector where people were choosing to invest in stocks. Um, In this case, they're choosing to invest in their community and into the the nonprofit resources that are around instead of the for-profit. And it... um, you know, I, I think I mentioned before that um, my aunt, who is 89 and, magnif- and a magnificent person, incredibly charitable person, um, always wants to know if there's somebody she knows on the board. Uh, a lot of business people just want to look at the dashboards and see how the revenues versus expenses are. Um, and other people choose to just want to look at the, pr- the uh, program or the mission um, and to see exactly how that is unfolding. What we've tried to create in all these pages for any one nonprofit organization is enough metrics that people can always find something um, to, to make their decision based on. And um, I, think that is, I think that is working, uh, working pretty well. Um, what I also love about Giving Matters um, and the fact that it powers the big payback is that... Um, the big payback is 24 hours. It really is much larger than simply the metaphoric pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, in, in preparation for the big payback of 2018 and during the years that have preceded it, um, thanks to our generous sponsors, Middle Tennessee's nonprofits are now conversant um, and capable of engaging donors through social media, using digital tools that they formerly were scared to death of, um, or at least about which they were skeptical. Um, you know, 
it is it is amazing how many tools um, have been conveyed to um, individual nonprofit organizations that, but for um, the sponsors of the big payback and but for the pay, big payback itself, would never have had a reason to embrace the digital age or even the analog age. I mean, I think a lot of them were probably still dealing with carbon paper. Um, and, um, and I can certainly understand that. Uh, but it really is about the training. It really is about capacity building um, and the capacity building of each organization to tell their story, um, not only during that 24 hours, but, um, but afterwards and before. Right. And I, I, I talked to, um, folks over at Operation Stand Down Tennessee about this, and they, they were an organization who was um, getting most of their funds from federal grants and wanted to kind of diversify where their revenue was coming from. That's smart. And uh, basically, in large part, learned how to do that through this training that goes along with the big payback. So they needed to bring, start bringing in individual gifts, but that meant getting better at using social media, and, and they've they've brought in steadily more and more money through the big payback and other things as years have gone by. And that's another really interesting thing, I think, about the work the Community Foundation is doing. I wonder if you could talk about another thing that um, I didn't get in get to get into in our story, but you and I talked about before, and I, I just thought was very interesting. We talked a lot about disaster response, um, which, unfortunately, you guys have been doing a lot of oh, yeah. recently. Oh, um, yeah. And every year, really. <laughs> um, you know, and so, but one thing you explained to me was these these funds that are corporate, um, I guess, corporate like corporate care, corporate yeah. care funds. Is or, that or employee yeah. assistance funds. Right, which uh-huh. are basically for the employees of businesses, big corporations, in the event of some disaster. Um, could you explain how those work a little bit? Yeah, these are very cool, and thank you for asking. Um, every CEO worth their salt says that their most important investment is in the people who work for them, uh, work with them. Um, and yet when they do disaster planning, they're always looking at buildings and computers and how to, uh, how to safeguard those and how to take care of those and how to restore those in case of, um, of disaster. And we realized that um, we could create, thanks to the IRS, we could create an opportunity for every company to set aside funds that were fully tax deductible um, that could be used... Um, should any one of their employees encounter serious financial hardship due to circumstances beyond their control? And there are four types. One is natural disaster. Two is death, kind of important. Uh, Three is injury, um, serious or life-threatening illness or injury. And the fourth is extreme circumstances, which sadly is often domestic violence or, or the like. This program gives a company, no matter how few or how many um, employees they have, an opportunity for those employees in time of crisis to confidentially and anonymously make a request to that employee assistance fund. Um, and we can then, um, once it, it is fully vetted, um, we can then... Um, help pay their basic living living expenses. So we can't go off and get the, you know, big, huge TV uh, that they have put together with the projectors and the, the theater chairs in their house. We're not going to be able to fix that for them. But we can pay their mortgage. Uh, we can help them rent a place to live. We can um, 
help them keep their electricity on. And those basic living expenses, um, we don't give them the money directly because that could cause an adverse um, effect on their own tax filings. Um, But we do pay the bills directly. And you were explaining to me how it's important that folks, when this happens to them, these employees, they apply to the fund or essentially to the community foundation as opposed to applying to their employer. Yes. So that that removes any potential for uh, someone being treated unfairly in some way. Um, they It's a, a third party who who is looking at this and then deciding kind of what they get from the fund and that kind of thing, which I thought we was very a, interesting. We have a, magnis- a magnificent uh, team that is put together by Benja Whitelaw um, that uh, she has a master's degree in counseling. Um, she spends a lot of time on the phone helping people walk through this trauma and talking to them. Um, and it is uh, a program that is turnkey. So if um, if company XYZ decides to set up one of these funds, uh, we do all the grunt work, uh, or as I lovingly call it, administrivia. And <laughs> then we... Um, and if we have to tell somebody no because they doesn't fit the IRS criteria, then we are the bad guys and the company remains the good guys. Anyone can contribute to any one of those funds. So a lot of the companies will set it up and then it will be um, uh, continue to grow because vendors or happy clients or patients um, contribute. One of the things I find most interesting about where you sit in your perch is that you are one of the foremost experts on how Nashville gives. Um, and it's not just through the, the, the big payback has been an interesting window in, in that we can sort of see there's, there's a big, there's a big scoreboard that you do. And there are a lot, like we were talking about the elephant foundation, which was number one on this year's list. But number two was old friends, dog sanctuary, which is a place that the scene's written a little bit about. Uh, it seems like Nashville has an affinity for animal charities. Um, what what does Nashville like to give to, and where are kind of like some of the biggest areas of need for Nashville? Okay, are we done yet? <laughs> <laughs> um, the biggest area of needs. Well, that is that is an impossible question. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Um, We're gonna get you in trouble now because every everyone needs more money, right? Is everybody that the deal? wants and needs more money. Um, you know, I think. I think the reason that our giving system works overall is that people understand that they can give to the causes that matter most to them. As I said before, nobody can do everything. And if people are choosing to invest in the things that they love, the rising tide should float all boats. Um, We are certainly in a state of um, enormous growth. Um, which causes things like gentrification, which causes things like uh, challenges to the historic preservation in our community. And um, there are lots of people who worry about maintaining its small-town charm, traffic, and all sorts of other things that don't appear to be charitable necessarily. They appear to be the function of government. Um, But as we have seen in the world of public education over the course of time, um, in the early 1990s, give or take, um, there was an organization set up called the Metro Nashville Public Education Foundation. And it was set up, and it ran into, it was set up by some some individuals who cared deeply about public education, but it ran into a little bit of a buzzsaw because people believed that they were already giving to public education because they were paying taxes. 
So how to, I think one of the biggest problems with giving right now is how to navigate the shoals as we develop more and more public-private partnerships, or as the mayor likes to say, private-public partnerships, <laughs> um, then, you know, those lines will, will um, continue to have to be discerned and redefined over the course of time. I think in, after 2008, the public sector, the private corporate sector and the charitable sector all realized that nobody could any longer do things by themselves, that we had to work together. And I think that probably that's the biggest driver right now um, in my mind is the, the, big, the bigger view of understanding how this community can come together um, in ways that are new and different, uh, kind of like the things that we were talking about before, but with a public-private spin. Does that help? That helps a lot. Just, uh, I don't know if you have anything else, but just one thing I wanted to ask you to say for people listening is how they can either give through the Community Foundation or set up funds or kind of, I know that that may be a, a longer answer, but just in the basics of kind of what people, direct people where you want them to go, I guess. <laughs> oh, if I had a magic wand. Yeah. Um, so... Anybody, we welcome anyone um, who can participate in the charitable giving of this to this community and for this community and within this community. Um, gifts of any size are welcome at any time from anyone. Uh, and we have worked very hard over the 26 years that uh, we've been doing this to make sure that everyone felt included, that they f felt like they had a place at the philanthropic table. The reality has been and probably continues to be that people believe that if you even get near the word philanthropy, that it means there's lots of zeros attached to whatever number and there are a few commas in there. Um, the reality is philanthropy works at every level. Um, there are hundreds of people every day in, um, in this community who may give five, 10, 15, 20, $100, whatever it is they have to give. And that is what really drives philanthropy in this city. It is not the big gifts that you hear about periodically. It is about the everyday investments in our neighbors. Um, it is about making sure, but they're, they're but for the grace of God go I. And um, it is about um, remembering that we, we really are a community. And if you break out that word, not to be too, um, too silly, but if you break out that word, it really is common unity. And how can we continue to work together to make this the community we all want to we all want to call home? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. If you want to know more about the Community Foundation, uh, you can get on www.cfmt.org. Um, if you have questions and you want to talk to a real live person, um, 615-321-4939. Is our telephone number. We only have one telephone number because we're a charity. <laughs> Ellen, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me.